Pray in the Psalms in the Anthropocene. Religious sorts have always been among the most industrious and madly possessed makers of homespun publications, zines, pamphlets and radical tracts. From the politically explosive to the wildly strange, I find myself always fascinated by these stapled together portals into deeply held stories and ideas from eccentric micro-communities, each with their own bent on the tale to be told, each written with the earnest conviction that it speaks with the weight of apocalyptic consequence. With some embarrassment and a wink, I suppose this is another one of those, a religious pamphlet, a tract. There could surely be no finer time to write one. We're all pamphleteers now, anyway. Try mashing together your last ten social media posts. The old meanings of everything are being shed like old skin these days. Late July this year, 2022, scores of homes were burned down in London and Lincolnshire by spreading grass fires. It was over 40 degrees, the hottest temperature on record where I am. I met a man from East Africa outside the dentist and he said it was just normal weather for him. My son asked me if the heat was because of climate change and I found myself saying that it was hard to say if an individual event is a result of climate change, but an increase in such events certainly were. It sounded very dull and removed. How do you talk about an apocalypse happening at the strange speed of Earth's climate systems? We're being thrown by an emergency into geological time. Sometimes things are not really understood until they're gone. I keep hearing people these days calling the Holocene the Garden of Eden, and they're mostly scientists. The Holocene was the geological epoch that began about 12,000 years ago after the last Ice Age finished. It was what they call an interglacial, a period of temperate climate between one ice age and another. It came with the paradise-like conditions in which the living planet became what we know it can be. And then an amazing thing happened, which has never happened before. The activities of just one creature became so pronounced that the Holocene epoch was interrupted and ended prematurely. The Anthropocene, like any geological epoch, can be seen in a layer of the Earth's crust. The layer will be distinguished to future observers by its disrupted carbon and nitrogen cycles, evidence of the mass movement or displacement of humans, animals and plant species, manipulated landscapes, architecture, bomb tests, a fossil record dominated by chicken bones and plastics, and all the marks of a changing climate pushing beyond the Eden-like stability of the Holocene. The Anthropocene, the human epoch, is yet to be enshrined in the official geological record because that order has its own tradition of councils and synods and moots that must be observed, especially in such rude circumstances as we find today. That we have entered, or triggered rather, a new geological epoch is generally accepted, according to Professor Mark Maslin. The question is, from when to date, 
the beginning of the Anthropocene. Three of the four dates suggested by Professors Maslin and Lewis fall in the very recent time span of modernity, the European colonization of the Americas, the Industrial Revolution and the Great Acceleration from 1945 into a global order of consumer capitalism. The fourth option that they suggest falls a very long time before these, thousands of years ago, in fact, with the dawn of agricultural humanity. See the aged siblings, Abraham and Sarai, wandering together away from the place that had been their home, away from Ur of the Chaldees, See them wandering off from some ancient civilization that had grown out of the fertile valleys of Mesopotamia and the ingenuity of the agricultural age. It is said that the diet of the new agricultural humanity was much worse than that of the foraging hominids that preceded them. They had moved into nutritional monocultures. What they had lost in food diversity they gained in environmental control. They opted for the domesticated and predictable food source. This stability, made possible by the temperate climate of the Holocene, gave rise to the need to keep and protect their harvested goods. There were storehouses and walls and small cities, kings and hierarchies, currencies and methods of notation, domesticated horses and armies to ride them to war. There was civilization. Abraham and Sarai were called to leave it all and become nomadic. They were to birth a new generation into the counterintuitive precarity of their nomadic way of life. They were only half-siblings, and the ancient tales should be allowed some strangeness. This is one of a series of mythic exodus tales that come in succession. The Tower of Babel was before it, and after is the story of Moses liberating the slaves from hard-hearted Pharaoh, a journey from pyramids to wilderness. In these stories, the dreamlike call of the maker always draws people away from the vertical monocultures of agricultural civilization out into the horizontal complexity of all things, out into the wilder spaces, away from those pioneering engines of the Anthropocene. The mythical narratives of the Book of Exits are painted in stark colours, set in times when cities were young. The further the books run into history, the greyer everything becomes. Civilization is, of course, not all bad. Or perhaps it's because the only way out is through. Or perhaps it is because the fall itself is somehow beautiful and must be gathered up into the redemption. Whatever the case, the distant children of the wandering siblings cannot escape becoming part of the systems of kings and walls and chariots and horses that hold together agricultural civilization, even if these were the very things the nomadic god had forbade them in the desert. 
The days of the tent dwellers, who recognised no kings, were a mythic memory. It is from this embedded and complex space that the Psalms come to us, from deep amidst the forming plates of the Anthropocene. They carry a kind of longing that runs like a river beneath awareness, a longing for a way out to the quieter complexity of the wild things of Edenic memory and the lost epoch of the Holocene. I grew up with the Bible. I loved it. I still do. My favourite parts as a young person were the myths and the histories, the apocalyptic visions and the poetic burn of the prophets. These parts were less often bastardised in sermons and worship songs. They were too strange to make use of, so they were more or less left alone. Not so the Psalms. I would see selected snippets of them on posters of waterfalls. I would hear bits of them in sentimental praise songs. In these, the Psalms were vehicles of introspective, individualistic and spiritualized self-soothing. But they read very differently on the page. On the page, it was all ancient politics and tribal warfare ecological poesis, unabashed schadenfreude, moral perplexities and pining discontent. It took a while to undomesticate the tradition and let its earthier colours and shades emerge. One thing that recurs with striking regularity is the quietly widening abyss between nature and culture. The religious world of my youth had not the frame to even notice this constantly reappearing trope, let alone take any interest in it. In that world, nature was more or less understood as a metaphor for the spiritual peace that an individual might find in religious belonging. It had little or no intrinsic importance. The songs on this record are, of course, my own readings of a handful of these poems, here the psalms are sung and prayed in the context in which I find myself, in the Anthropocene, newly unmasked, which by some reckoning had already begun before the psalms were written. Tangled amidst the political intrigues of the ancient Jewish kingdoms, the psalms too are, I think, reaching for a way out of the violent, hierarchical, unjust and denatured world that had emerged with the fall of humans into the agricultural age. Reading the poems on this common ground, it seems to me that we meet a character over and over again, the god of wildness, who is juxtaposed as entirely other to the grasping political powers of states and kingdoms. Kings and rulers would often rather anxiously and presumptuously attempt to associate themselves with this god, but the feeling is not really returned in kind, while kings wished and still wish to be found with the god of the Psalms. The god of the Psalms is ever to be found elsewhere, with the storm, the raging oceans, the thrashing of sea monsters, and the trees in the wind, 
with hungry lions, with the sparrows, with the sun and the stars and the changing skies, with the quietly restoring stream, and with the tree upon its banks. The Creator is found amidst the undomesticated complexity of wildness, of bare life. In the Psalms, the ecological life of the living planet is not a metaphor. It is a generative mystery and a non-negotiable reality. It has an outer ring which cannot be passed. It is an economy of returns that can't be meddled with. Creaturely life is the orphilic truth that crushes all human fantasies of pride, hubris and exceptionalism. Creaturely life is filled with the maker's love and is the unsurpassable boundary of experience. What of kings and rulers? They are the stuff of divine laughter. They are a fool's hope of safety, security and stability. They are not to be trusted. Their armies make nothing bare and they make no one safer. They are the practitioners of wickedness. Their domesticated horses can't save anyone or guarantee anything. Their chariots and swords and spears will all rust and rot and burn eventually. The wild god brings an end to the wearying and constantly warlike standoff of agricultural humanity. The wild god will silence the supremacist's noise. The wild god will finally say, be still, and those places will become a desolation. The Anthropocene will give way to something else. It is worth contemplating the fact that in a time when human beings had thrown their survival in with the fortunes of agricultural civilization, the Hebrews worshipped a God who reveled in halting and scattering such designs, a God who preferred tents to stone temples. It must be said that there are many psalms written in many voices with varying and even contrary perspectives, but to be sure the God of the psalms as represented in this collection is something of an anarchist, a fervent disbeliever in the powers and laws which emerged as an organised approach to transgressing the outer ring of natural limits as well as the inner ring of injustice. Visual depictions of our recent civilised life have, in certain spheres, taken the form of a single line striking an angular path across and upward. How would we explain these diagonal markings to the future? This is an iconography of triumph, it is what it is because in Western cultures time goes in the direction we read from left to right and growth climbs upward toward a god of the skies, always growing, always linear and always a single story. This is how capitalist economics have been drawn. It is a story about abstract wealth increasingly untethered from material reality Money as raw power and shared fiction. Recently, the economist Kate Rayworth redrew the economic imagination as a circle. She noted that circular imagery is more common among indigenous cultures. These are somehow intuitively descriptive of the whole. 
the gestalt, unlike the linear markings of abstract progress. She envisioned two rings, an inner and an outer. The outer ring represents the material limits of the living planet. The outer ring is the cry of the earth, says my friend Samuel, quoting the Pope, I believe. The inner ring is the limit of human poverty, the cry of the poor, says Sam once again. Every transgression of the outer ring has a return. As we are now learning, the multitudes unceremoniously tipped into the inner ring also have a return, according to the God of the Psalms. The wild God is also the poor God, the God of the poor, who, it is said, will inherit the earth in the end. In learning about the Anthropocene, I sometimes find myself party to discussions about solutions of one kind or another, and I mostly find myself rather ill at ease. The whole story quickly becomes another problem to be solved, and nothing stirs the anthropocenic demons like problem-solving. We can make this more efficient in this way. We can develop technologies to do that better in that way. It's natural to us, at least, to think that we can get ourselves out of what we got ourselves into, While I really am suspicious of my own Luddite tendencies, I am at least equally suspicious of our quickness to try to solve our problems as a way to escape having to solve what we have become. Is our exceptionalism our salvation, or is it the root of our troubles? In considering those four thresholds, those four potential beginning points for the Anthropocene, we may observe a common thread. These were all sins of maximization, each of them still in full swing today. Maximized control over our food sources in the agricultural revolution. Maximized access to natural resources, labor and markets in the colonial age. Maximized manufacturing efficiency in the industrial revolution. Maximized stability of the consumer capitalist system in the Great Acceleration. And since Maslin gives honourable mention to it, early humans also maximised protein intake and warmth when they learned how to work in teams and hunted the large land mammals to extinction. These sins of maximisation have things in common. They have all benefited some, outsourced suffering to others, and ultimately led to a depleted life for all. But it's worth remembering that in their time, these were solutions to problems. Some people believed that they were making things better. It's difficult to envisage how we might break our strange pattern. Are we not wired by our long natural history to always make the choices that maximise our immediate scope for survival? How could we ever become a creature that leaves some of what we find unpicked, that chooses to live in the straw house when it's the brick one that keeps the wolf out? I doubt that we can solve our way ahead. I have a fancy that we need to become almost a new creature, characterised by a sort of gestalt awareness, an almost total empathy, 
an immersive identification of ourselves with all things. This, I think, can only come through suffering. It comes slowly through generations identifying with the whole at a time when the whole is in protracted pain. It comes by looking upon what is pierced and pillaged and foolishly wasted as though it were part of ourselves. The ancestors of possibility are the bearers of stripes, the suffering servant of other possible futures. One day, the myth tells, the new creature will be reconciled to the all in all, will feel whenever it takes that it has also been taken from, will know that whenever it gives, it has also received, via whatever it has given to. To the new creature, maximization would make no sense. It would be like speaking to the ocean of wetness. The Book of Psalms is a book of returns. It does not understand the Anthropocene, the foolishness of the nations, as a problem to solve. It is rather a bad story walking towards its own inevitable end, a scheme that takes and takes until it has hollowed itself out. There is no plan or fix. There is only to be still and known, to become creaturely again, to become the kind of creature that grows by the river and becomes a home for the birds, to embody the exit of the nomadic siblings, even in the fraught cities, until the cities themselves become nomadic spaces. There is only the breaking of vows to power, vocal empathy with suffering, and revolutionary patience. When communism fell in Eastern Europe, Francis Fukuyama declared the triumph of capitalism, the end of history. I read another idea in a Giorgio Agamben essay, The Open. Here it was noted that history began when Homo sapiens distinguished themselves as non-animal creatures with tools and learning and art and language. He referred to a visual depiction of the Messianic age found in a Hebrew Bible from the 13th century in which humans were drawn with animal heads. Perhaps it followed that the disquiet of history would find peace when the human creature becomes reconciled to their animal nature. When they are able to enjoy whatsoever is peculiar to their kind, having relinquished their exceptionalism and the spiralling imbalances that follow it. Perhaps the end of history stands before us at the back door of the Anthropocene. There, where the all-in-allness, the gestalt awareness, awaits. There, where the wild god makes merry.